twice this summer, I floated the Kenai River. Got a picture here of me at the oars looking manly. Oh, yeah. Look at those biceps right there. By the way, I turned 50 in like three weeks. I am well-preserved, I tell you. I'm loving it. So twice, floated the Kenai River. And both times, I have just been gawking at a cataract that is wrapped around the bridge pier. This group apparently just was drifting along, and their cataract went, hit that pier, and rather than bounce off it, the undertow flipped the uh, cataract and then just bent it around the pier. Uh, I did hear that the people lived. They lost their, uh, their stuffs, including some guns. If you're interested, you could probably find them somewhere in the Kenai. But they survived, praise the Lord. But it was a, uh, um, a, a testament to the importance of keeping your hands on the oars while you're floating the Kenai River. You can't just drift that river. Uh, it'll take you bad places. It'll take you into a pier. It'll take you into uh, the over, overhang sweepers. It'll take you into big rocks. And now if you, if you stay vigilant and you keep your hands on the oars, you can have a great time. But if you drift, you're going to drift into danger. And that is a spiritual principle as well. We cannot just drift along spiritually. Romans 12, 1, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think that's talking about the danger of just drifting spiritually. You will be conformed to the pattern of this world. And what is the pattern of the world? Is it a pattern of godliness? When we look around at what kind of the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist of the age, uh, it, it, is that current taking us toward God? Or away from God, I would, I, I, I would submit to you that the current of the world takes you farther away from God, not toward God. So we can't just drift, or we're going to, we're going to shipwreck spiritually. So I've titled the message today, Avoiding uh, Spiritual Drift. Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. We've been in, we are in a series titled Comeback Kids. We're looking at the, his, the, the story of the Jewish return from exile, Babylonian exile. And we're well into the series. If you missed earlier sermons, you can catch up online at clearwater.church. You can also listen to uh, audio podcasts. And um, last week, we ended on a spiritual high note. The people read dedicated themselves to following God. And they had actually written a, a document, and the leaders of the people signed the document on behalf of the people, and top at the, of the list was Nehemiah. Nehemiah, we're going to do better. We are committed to uh, fulfilling our covenant obligations, and we're going to make sure that the house of God is kept up. And, and so I have to imagine that when Nehemiah headed back to Babylon, because he was an official of the Persian Empire, and he had to go back and give a report to the king, I have to imagine that Nehemiah felt pretty darn satisfied uh, with his mission and the success of his mission. Uh, the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. Uh, 
the, the city was being populated. A lot of Jewish people had committed to coming and living inside the city. Uh, so there was economic activity restarting. Uh, he had made sure that, the, that there were enough priests and Levites and temple singers to, to keep the temple running and, and the sacrifices flowing. Uh, there had been a, a spiritual revival uh, uh, amongst the people of God. The returnees had committed to uh, doing better and, and making sure that the house of God was taken care of. So I think Nehemiah, when he, on, when he was headed back to Babylon, had to feel pretty good about all that God had accomplished through him and his mission. Nehemiah spent 12 years in Babylon... Uh, serving the king, the Persian king. And then after 12 years, he asked uh, for the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us it was 12 years. We know that from other sources. So 12 years after leaving uh, Jerusalem and uh, the, this spiritual kind of high mark, he comes back, and what do you think he finds? What he finds is that the people have drifted spiritually. They're not doing what they said they were going to do. They're not diligently fulfilling their covenant obligations. They're not keeping up the temple. Uh, they have just drifted spiritually. And so the final chapter of Nehemiah, and in, in uh, Hebrew, by the way, Ezra Nehemiah's one book. So, so in a sense, the, you know, the, the story ends on a pretty sad note. This story of uh, the people returning to exile, or returning to Babylon after their seventy years of exile, it actually ends on a pretty sad note. With Nehemiah uh, noting the problems he found upon returning to Jerusalem and what he did to try to correct it. So let's hit these really quickly. Nehemiah chapter thirteen, the first evidence of spiritual drift we read about in verse four. Now. Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests." Nehemiah returns and he finds that one of the uh, chambers of the house of God, one of the rooms in the temple which uh, had been used for the, the, the purposes of God and to further the worship of God, had been emptied out and handed over to Tobiah for his secular purposes. Who's Tobiah? Remember Sanballat and Tobiah from a number of weeks ago? The, uh, Tobiah worked hard to keep the walls from being rebuilt. He was Nehemiah's nemesis. Uh, he was not a Jew. He was not a believer. And so here is a room in God's temple that has been handed over to him for his, his secular uh, use. And so what is this evidence? Well, it certainly evidences that Eliashib doesn't really respect uh, God. He doesn't honor the temple. It's not sacred to him. He makes use of, of, of something that is, belongs to God to further his own you know, 
political or relational ambitions. And the people of God have allowed it to happen. So they're all complicit. There's just a, a lack of respect for God evidenced in this. Now in verse 10, here's the second evidence of spiritual drift. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. Well, what is, what's going on here? The Levites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and God had tasked the Levites with uh, taking care of uh, the religious rights in Israel. They, it was their job to maintain the temple and to do the sacrifices and to teach the people uh, the law of God. And so, in a sense, if you were born a Levite, you were born into full-time ministry. Well, who paid for that? The other 11 tribes. But if the other 11 tribes weren't bringing in the portions of the Levites, well, then the Levites had to go kind of provide for themselves. And that's why the Levites and the temple singers have fled each to, their, each to his field. They're, they're going, they have to go get a real job. <laughs> and, and they can't then um, maintain the temple. And so what does this show? It, it shows um, that the people don't really value they don't really value the worship of God because they're not providing for it. They'd rather spend their money on something else. Verse 15, here's another evidence of spiritual drift. Nehemiah finds, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Verse 16, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. So God had commanded that you were to keep the Sabbath holy. Don't be working on the Sabbath. And here you've got work, treading wine press. You have commerce going on. The people of God are not keeping the Sabbath. This was just a, a, a recurrent problem. Why? They were discontent with what God was providing for them on the other six days. That's the bottom line. They weren't content with what God was giving them, and they were, they were taking matters in their own hands to get ahead and to get the life they wanted. So a discontent with God's provision. Then in verse 23, we, we see the final evidence of spiritual drift Nehemiah encounters. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, unbelievers. So Jews marrying unbelieving women. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So what's the danger? The danger is the children are losing their cultural identity. The children are not being taught uh, to fear the Lord and obey the Lord. And so you have spiritual uh, dilution of the people. And that's a big deal. Nehemiah uh, talks about the danger of marrying an unbeliever when he says, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, 
among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Right? Solomon, who started off so well and was wise, and God blessed him, he marries these unbelieving women, and they turn his heart away from the Lord. And so the end of his life is tragic. And Nehemiah is saying, that's, that's what happens to us too. We're not, we're not better than, than Solomon. <clears throat> I've now been a, in full-time Christian ministry for 20-plus years. 20 years ago, if I were warning against the dangers of spiritual drift, I would not feel it the way I do now. Because now I have personally witnessed way too many who have drifted away from the Lord. Tragic and shocking. Name after name after name. People that I would not have expected at all. Because they had been in the church, they had been partners in ministry, they had appeared all in, they had professed with their mouths uh, love for the Lord. And now where are they? Some of them have full-on apostatized. They don't even profess to be Christians. People like, not that I know these people, but like uh, Rhett and Link from Good Mythical Morning, right? They, when they started off, if you don't know them, they're very hilarious, YouTubers. And they used to be crew members. They're on staff with crew, right? They're, they were ministering to college students. And, and now they've both come out with their... Uh, what are what are being called deconstruction stories? I've outgrown my faith in Jesus, and here's why. Very tragic. So some have full-on apostates, but then there are many, many others who they don't they don't say they're not Christians. They would still consider them Christian, themselves Christians, but it's it's as if they've abandoned the church and they've abandoned the mission of God. And they're, they, they, they don't seem to be living all that much different from the world. What's going on? <clears throat> in, full, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this about Demos. And Demos was a guy who had been doing ministry with Paul. He had been a traveling companion, a, a ministry associate. And then Paul says this, He's talking to, uh, to, to the people, uh, to Timothy. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's what I'm talking about. Christians who fall in love with the world and out of love with God. I doubt Demas said, I'm not a Christian. But Demas had become unuseful, right, in the kingdom. Listen, your heart is in danger of becoming in love with the world, and mine is too. Your heart is in danger of being, falling in love with the world, and so is mine. And we have to be... Um, vigilant about not drifting spiritually. Turn now in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 4, um, because I think what we, what we need to 
understand is why people drift spiritually, right? Why do we drift spiritually? If we understand why we drift, I think we can guard our hearts against it. And so here's Jesus uh, giving, teaching the parable of the sower as it's become known. And the, so the parable is just Jesus talks about a guy who's out sowing seeds, right? And he's a farmer, and he obviously is wanting to grow a crop. And some of the seed falls on hard ground, and the birds come and they eat the seed. Some falls on um, rocky ground, and it goes down, or, or it sprouts up quickly, but because it's rocky ground, it, it, the roots don't go down very far, and so when the, when the sun comes, it quickly uh, dries up uh, the stalk. Some of the seed falls on, um, falls on soil where there's also, there are also a lot of thorns, and so they grow up together, and the thorns choke out uh, the stalk. And then some falls on good soil, and it comes up, and it reproduces uh, 30, 60, 100-fold crop. And Jesus then um, tells later, when he's alone with his disciples, he explains the point of the parable. And so we find that in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse uh, 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So, the seed that falls on the hardened soil, like on a path because it's been tamped down, uh, he said, that's the kind of person who hears the gospel and they don't, under they don't understand it, they don't appreciate it. So this is the person who you, you tell them the good news that God loved them enough to leave heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and then he bursts from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death. He grants his Holy Spirit to the follower, and then when we die, he resurrects us and takes us to be with him forever. And they listen to that, and they don't see in it any good news for them. Their hearts are hardened to the good news of the gospel. Okay, that's what you believe. I'm glad you find, have some hope, gain some hope from that. I'm glad that gives you, you know, some purpose in life, but I don't need that. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it's sad when, especially when we really care for somebody and we share the gospel, and sometimes we mistakenly think, that the only obstacle to being a Christian is lack of knowledge, and that's not necessarily true. <laughs> uh, it, it, it can be hardness of heart. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Oh, that is great news. I see in that good news for me. I want in. I'm a Christian now. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. So this is the person who says, you know what? I don't think, the, I don't think the, that what I gain in Jesus is worth the hardship it brings. I don't think gaining Jesus is worth putting up with all this persecution, all this 
tribulation, all this difficulty. Now, maybe they don't go so far as to say, and now I'm no longer a Christian, and deny Jesus openly, but maybe they shut their mouths and start talk, stop talking about them to our, their friends and family and coworkers. They don't speak up for biblical ethics any longer because they don't want the backlash. Verse 18, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They're, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is, the, this is the one that gets me most. This is the one I'm most in danger of. Cares of the world. How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to stay healthy? How am I going to help my kids pad their resume so they can get into the colleges of their choice? How am I going to make sure my retirement account is, is ready by the time I want to retire? And the deceitfulness of riches? Ugh. Oh. If I could just start making X amount a year of passive income, then I would have the life I really want. What do I have to do? I just read an article about uh, a guy who was lambasting this. I guess this summer there's, there's a phrase that's become popular called quitting quietly. Uh, supposedly it's millennials who are um, putting up their own internal boundaries at work. I'm not going to work more than I have to. Uh, I'm going to maintain balance. And, and there was this CEO lambasting this, and he said, if you're not willing to work eight days a week, 27 hours a day, you can't work for me. And he said, it's all about you've got to be willing to go all in in order to gain that financial freedom so you can have the life you want. Well, there's, that's the deceitfulness of riches talking, Right? Sacrifice your life for some undefined period of time so that you can finally have you know, the life we really all want, which is the wealthy life. There's the deceitfulness of riches, and we are all in danger of being swallowed up by it. And the desire for other things. Oh, my goodness. If I'm going to get that Boone and Crockett moose... It's going to take a serious investment of time and energy. And these aren't necessarily bad things. We're not, not, not talking necessarily sinful. But there's a, there's a cost to it, right? And so here's the way I put this one. I'm so busy unpacking this world that I have little, little left over to spend on the next. Right? Cares of the world, deceitfulness of wealth, desire for other things... That takes your time and your energy, your attention, your affection. And so you're, you're so, you get, next thing you know, you're so busy unpacking this world that you don't have any time left over to spend on the next. Serving God, enjoying God, deepening your relationship with the Lord, spreading the good news. Because the, the, the fact of the matter is that all takes time and energy and money too, right? It's, we live in a world of making choices, uh, of priority. 
and that we are all in danger of becoming like Demas, falling in love with the world and abandoning the things of God. I'm there too. The current of the world flows away from God, not to God. If we just drift along spiritually, next thing you know, we'll find ourselves hung up on a pier, smashing into a rock, spiritual rock, or or sweepers grabbed us. So I've been following Christ now for 40 years. And let me tell you, I thought when I was younger it would get easier and easier, right? It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it, it still requires every day reminding myself uh, that God exists and He rewards those who diligently seek Him. And that's where real life is to be found. And to constantly be checking my heart and checking my priorities and checking where my time and energy is going and making constantly, constantly, constantly having to make adjustments because I'm in danger of drifting spiritually away from God just like you all, just like you are. And so we have to man the spiritual oars of our lives every day. We let go close our eyes, we just drift, we get casual about following Jesus, and next thing you know, you're, 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 you could be spiritually shipwrecked. And, and it, comes down, it comes down to the decisions of prioritizing the Word of God, tr- prioritizing being with the people of God, prioritizing the mission of God. Day in, day out, faithful, just the dripping faucet, that's a positive dripping faucet. Steady, cumulative effect of choice after choice after choice after choice for God. And when you make the choice against God, you say, that's wrong. God, forgive me. Cleanse me of that. I'm reorienting my life back to you. And it doesn't stop when you're 30. It doesn't stop when you're 40. It doesn't stop when you're 50. Dad, does it stop when you're 79? Not quite, no. Don't think you're immune to this. You're not immune to it. And so here we are. We're starting off a a new school year, and um, I'm sorry that summer is winding up, but we're all having to make choices again about, all right, what's the pattern of my life going to look like here this winter? Be, in, be thoughtful about that. Make sure that you are manning the spiritual oars this winter. So that's the final question. As the band comes up, comes up, I want you to be just wrestling in the quietness of your own heart with this question. What does manning the spiritual oars look like for me today? Close your eyes. Just think about that in, with the Lord. What does manning the spiritual oars look like for me today? Because God's desire for us is that we would um, 
produce a harvest of 30, 60, 100-fold. God wants our lives to matter for eternity, that other people would be influenced, whether they're little kids in, in uh, a children's church or whether they're uh, high schoolers with young life or whether you're helping out at the Boys and Girls Club and, and um, being the presence of Christ there or as a teacher, whatever. But what, yeah, how is your life going to be um, making a difference for eternity? Lord, we are prone to wander. We, we feel that. And Spirit of God, we ask that you would just keep drawing our affections and uh, to, to, up to you. Keep lifting our chins, focusing our attentions on you. Continue to remind us of the truth. God exists. He rewards those who diligently seek him. Life in all its fullness can only be found in obedience to Christ. Convince, of the, of, uh, convince us of that every day, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.